If there is one book that's been recommended to me again and again consistently over the last year by podcast guests and listeners alike, it has to be Linda Sue Park's Prairie Lotus. I knew I wanted to include Prairie Lotus in our lineup for New Reads November 2021, and the time is finally here. In Prairie Lotus, we meet Hannah, an Asian American girl who, along with her father, has been traveling from California to the Midwest since the death of her mother a few years earlier. At long last, they find a place to settle in the Dakota Territory, but the transition is not so easy. The year is 1880, and Hannah's new community is far from welcoming to newcomers and anyone who, like Hannah, might be considered other. Hannah struggles to find her place as the only Asian American biracial student in her new school, but she is determined to get an education so that she can fulfill her mother's dreams for her before she goes to work at her father's new dress shop. She is a talented designer and wants to win the town over with her work. We'll talk more about the origin story for Prairie Lotus later, but you should know upfront that it was inspired by Linda Sue Park's love of the Little House on the Prairie series, and yet it offers a new perspective that is so often unheard in our country. You'll hear us chat about this in depth over the next hour. Other topics of conversation include the importance of being able to bring our full identities to the table, the empowering nature of making art, the parts of history that many of us miss, Linda Sue Park's portrayal of Native Americans, the challenges of fitting in, the pressures placed on children and women of color, and the depiction of allyship and assault in Prairie Lotus. I will put a trigger warning on this episode as we do discuss assault toward the end. There is so much to dig into with this book, and after all of the recommendations I got for it, I certainly hope we did it proud. Today, I am thrilled to introduce you to the brilliant Vera Hiranandani. Vera is the author of The Night Diary, which has received many awards, including the 2019 Newbery Honor Award, the 2019 Walter Dean Myers Honor Award, and the 2018 Malka Penn Award for Human Rights in Children's Literature. She is also the author of The Whole Story of Half a Girl, which was named a Sydney Taylor Notable Book and a South Asia Book Award Highly Commended Selection, and the chapter book series Phoebe G. Green. Vera's new book, How to Find What You're Not Looking For, is now available. She earned her MFA in fiction writing at Sarah Lawrence College. A former book editor at Simon & Schuster, she now teaches creative writing at Sarah Lawrence College's Writing Institute. Follow Vera on Instagram at VeraWrites and on Twitter at VeraHira. It was such a treat chatting with Vera for this episode, and I know you're going to love our conversation. If you want more SSR, find the show on social media. SSR is at SSRPod on Instagram and Twitter, and you can find the show on Facebook by searching The SSR Podcast or The SSR Podcast Community. We also have a free book club, The SSRBC. Every month, we have amazing volunteer leaders facilitating conversations about throwback titles that have previously been covered on the podcast. This month, Meg Cabot's All-American Girl takes the stage, and in December, it's all about Gail Carson Levine's Ella Enchanted. Learn more and join us on Facebook, Slack, and Zoom at www.ssrpodcast.com slash ssrbookclub or at the link in SSR's Instagram bio. There's no cost at all, and it's a great way to meet more book lovers. I can't say enough good things about this community. I also have a very special place in my heart for the SSR Patreon community. Members of the Patreon family contribute a few dollars every month, as little as one dollar actually, to this independent podcast, and in return, they get access to some exclusive rewards. Rewards include newsletters, bonus audio and video content, merch, access to our SSR Discord channel, and membership in the SWR Shit We Read book club. 
I run this podcast as a one-woman show, and the contributions I get from SSR supporters really do help keep the show going and growing. If you love the show and can spare the cost of a fancy coffee, I would love to have you as a patron. We have a really great time. Thanks so much to all of the patrons listening now. One more thing before we get into another fantastic New Reads November episode. I have to shout out to Libro.fm. Libro.fm is an audiobook discovery and listening platform that allows you to support independent bookstores instead of giant corporations when you shop for audiobooks. The audiobooks you get from Libro.fm are exactly the same as the ones you would buy from the big guys, and they're the same price too. With the holidays approaching, you might even consider gifting Libro.fm to your loved ones. SSR listeners can get a discount on their first audiobook purchase from Libro.fm. Go to Libro.fm, that's L-I-B-R-O dot F-M, and use code SSRPOD when prompted on the site to get a two-month audiobook membership for the price of just one month. Now let's go to the show. Welcome to the SSR Podcast. You may recognize SSR as an elementary school era abbreviation for silent sustained reading, but if you don't, that's okay. What it stands for here is Shit She Read. Each week, we'll crack the binding on an old school read written for kids or teens and talk about it from a kind of grown-up perspective. We'll obsess over heartthrobs, relive the frustrations of middle school, and say an occasional WTF to a beloved author. If we haven't met yet, I'm your host, Ali Hofkosik, freelance writer, lifelong bookworm, and lover of anything covered in rainbow sprinkles. So find your favorite reading spot and a glass of wine. We're about to revisit some literary throwbacks right here on the SSR Podcast. Hi, Vera. Welcome to SSR. Hi, I'm happy to be here. I am so happy that you're here, and I am so, so happy that we are tackling Linda Sue Park's Prairie Lotus today, and I can't wait to hear more about why you chose to read this book. I have to tell you, though, this book has come up so many times on the podcast over the last couple of years. We've done a couple of Little House on the Prairie episodes, and every time that series comes onto the radar. We end up talking about Prairie Lotus and how Prairie Lotus is this really important other narrative that we need to be bringing in to that part of our history now. I've had several guests included as part of their book recommendations at the end of their interviews. So it is about time that I got to read it. And I am thrilled that you're here to talk about it. Me too. Me too. So tell me a little bit more about how the book came across your radar and why you chose it for your SSR moment. Well, so I'm always, you know, trying to follow Linda Sue Park and what she does. And she's, you know, I've had the honor to meet her a couple of times. And I listen to, you know, if she's on a podcast, I listen to it. She's just an author that I not only follow her work, but I follow how she talks about children's literature, because I just feel like she has this way of taking all of these random thoughts that I'm thinking, and I'm not quite sure how to articulate and organize. And then I hear on a podcast, I'm like, yes, that's, that's what I was thinking. That's what I was trying to say. So I really admire how she, how she talks about the work as well. Yeah, she is fantastic. Listeners, for context on Linda Sue Park's career, she won a Newbery Medal back in 2002 for a book called Single Shard. So she has been making her impact on this industry for literally two decades at this point. And I love that this new book, Prairie Lotus, is getting so much attention, both from readers, from librarians, from booksellers, and for good reason, of course. Yes, yes. And so... Um, It had been on my radar, you know, because it was by Linda Sue Park, but also because it was a historical 
piece, historical fiction. So I'm always looking at how other people, other writers that I admire are handling different historical lenses of time and what they're doing with that. And then also it was about a biracial character. So I'm always interested in reading books about biracial characters because I myself am biracial and and growing up, you know, I certainly didn't have the kind of choices that I have today. So it still kind of almost thrills me to to identify with a character where I'm like, that's exactly how that feels in a way that, you know, some characters, even though I might really identify with them in other ways or empathize with them, hasn't quite hit hit that spot in my in my heart. So so those were the reasons I wanted to read it. So I feel like I'm having the same experience listening to you talk about books that maybe you you just described having when you hear Linda Sue Park talk about books. Um, I'm like, wow, these are things that I think about, about the books that I enjoy reading, and you just make them sound so much better. <laughs> oh, gosh. Well, thank you. Thank you. There's a fantastic author's note at the end of Prairie Lotus. And I kind of want to start there. I actually think we could do like a whole episode just about the author's note of this book because it's so wonderful and so important. And so I'm actually going to share a couple of excerpts from it just because I think it will give listeners a sense of the inspiration for this book and why we really need it. So excuse any page turning. I am going to open up to my candy author's note here. Um, So Linda Sue Park starts this author's note by writing, I wrote Hannah's story as an attempt at a painful reconciliation. Among the most beloved of my childhood books were those written by Laura Ingalls Wilder. As an adult, I have met numerous immigrants and children of immigrants who, like me, adored the Wilder books. My theory is that we saw them as providing a kind of roadmap to becoming American. We believed, mistakenly, as I would later learn, that if we made maple snow candy and a nine-patch quilt and a corncob doll and named it Susan, just as Laura had, we might one day and somehow be as American as she was. And she goes on to share so many other brilliant lines and and thoughts um, that we may circle back to as we go through this conversation. And she also shared pieces of this same kind of like origin story for the book in some interviews that I found online, which I'll share in the show notes for this episode. But she describes her journey of writing Prairie Lotus as something like premature fan fiction. And I don't know if you've heard her talk about this at all, Vera, but she talks about how like she loved Laura Ingalls Wilder so much when she was growing up and she used to lay in bed at night and think about what it would be like to be friends with Laura Ingalls Wilder and how much she wanted that. And at some point it occurred to her that Ma, Laura Ingalls Wilder's mom, wouldn't allow that because of the very racist comments that we see mom make in the book series. And Linda Sue Park is like, well, I am not white. I wasn't white when I was a kid. And so I actually wouldn't have been allowed to be Laura Ingalls Wilder's friend. And so she talks about how like over the years, she spent this time like kind of figuring out how these different stories could blend together. And it was this fan fiction kind of inspired by the world of Little House on the Prairie, but still removed from it. I thought that was just so interesting and such such a cool way to think about story and how how we find inspiration for stories and and how we can like insert our own voices and represent other important viewpoints in the things that inspired us when we were growing up. Yeah, I remember thinking, hearing when I was listening to the author's note, you know, that sort of heartbreaking realization that she had over books that she loved and what 
she now sees as all the problems in the book, you know, particularly Ma's views about what a girl should be and her racist views against Native Americans and also just being, you know, also being a growing up as a girl with brown hair and brown eyes, you know, and what would I, I wouldn't be allowed to be friends with the kids in that book. And I wasn't actually a huge Little House on the Prairie fan. I, I read like one book and then just kind of flitted away. But I do remember feeling that about so many books, but not really conscious of it. And so you don't realize what you're internalizing. It just feels like this sort of never ending kind of, I, I'm aspiring to something I know that that's sort of the center of the world and I'm not in the center and people feel this for all kinds of reasons, certainly growing up. I'm not in that center and I don't even know if I'm allowed to be, but I will always somehow aspire to be in that center. And rather than, you know, Linda Sue Park as an adult sort of looked at that and said, no, I, I don't aspire to be in that center of this world of these books that I loved growing up anymore. And I need to create my own story, kind of taking the parts that I loved of it, and then sort of centering other ideas that I feel are important in a way that I, growing up, would be able to kind of be in the center of that story. And it is an amazing thing that she's done and such an important thing that she's done because you, you really don't realize what you put aside of yourself in that way. And you're just constantly doing that as you're reading. You know, I grew up in Connecticut and um, in the 70s and 80s. And so I read the books that were available to me and loved them very much. So of course, Road Dahl and Beverly Cleary and Judy Bloom and E.B. White, you know, and I love these authors, but I still still was always putting myself kind of aside that I wasn't, I was in these books in certain ways, but in other ways, I just wasn't. I so appreciate you sharing that. And I think what I've learned in the course of, of this whole podcast project over the last three plus years, and one of the reasons that we started doing New Reads November every year is that the books that so many of us read when we were growing up in the 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, the aughts, are not representative of the vast majority of people for all kinds of reasons. And many of those reasons are quite painful. And I am a white woman. I grew up in a predominantly white community. And so I was lucky in that the ways in which I felt alienated by the books that I read were not as, they didn't cut me as deep as I know so many people experienced. And so hearing the stories from my guests who talk about the ways in which they felt apart because of pop culture, it does break my heart. And it's it's just, it proves the urgency and the significance of works like Prairie Lotus. So I'm glad that Linda Sue Park is here and that she has been, been sharing her talent and her gift and her passion with us for the last 20 years. And it's about time we covered a book of hers on SSR. I'm sad that this is actually the first of her books that I've ever read. Like, I don't know where I've been all these years, but I'm glad this is my first. Yeah, I think because, so she won the Newbery in 2002 and I was 12 and I was like one of those kid readers that was like, I'm 12, so I'm reading books for adults. So I think by the time like I hit that, age group. Yeah. I was not reading middle grade. And then I just, I feel like I maybe missed the window, but now I feel like I need to go back and reread all of her work because I loved the book and I loved reading her interviews. I found one interview she did with Shelf Awareness where 
she's acknowledging the fact that she had all of this insecurity and kind of trepidation about writing about a Chinese American character because she herself is Korean American. And so she's talking about the nuances that I think so many people forget about and don't understand and misunderstand. And I just love... I love to learn more about these authors, especially somebody like Linda Sue Park, who is such a wonderful advocate for own voices for we need diverse books. I know that she she's also written about how this wasn't a book she could have written early in her career because she was still like working out some of her own identity stuff. Right. And she said that she really was empowered by movements like we need diverse books to do this. Absolutely. And, you know, she she does a masterful job sort of taking her own experience, but then sort of applying it to possibly similar experiences, but at the same time doing the work to step outside of herself to be able to do that in a really nuanced way. And I think that that's why the sort of hashtag own voices is really, it's really important. But at the same time, there is a lot of nuance behind that. And I think of it in terms of my own writing, you know, I'm always sort of putting my own experiences kind of at the forefront, but at the same time, branching off into other experiences that I feel are important for me to write about and think about, but I have not experienced directly myself. And, you know, like in my new book, I'm writing about a character with two Jewish parents who is identifying as white and Jewish. And it's certainly very connected to my personal family history at the same time, I am, I'm not the main character in the book. So I really appreciate that she does that and does that so well in Prairie Lotus. But I think that sort of straddling of two cultures and two identities, um, and the way she's trying to connect with her mother who died, and the sort of Chinese part of herself that she feels people see, but she doesn't sort of you know, her mother's not there anymore to kind of guide her through that identity. And she has to sort of figure it out all on her own. And her father is more guided by survival and fear in the way that he just wants to, he wants to protect her and he wants to protect himself. And he wants to sort of thrive and be able to make money. And that certainly is is important survival wise in the book. But she has to figure out when she needs to tell her father that she exists in all of the ways that she exists. And he she's not okay with him sort of trying to hide certain parts of herself. Um, And so that is really her character arc in the book of finding that courage. And it's, I think we just don't understand how, how brave and how courageous this character is in a way, because just to imagine, I mean, it's hard to imagine yourself. It takes place, I think, in 1880. To imagine being biracial in 1880, where, you know, the world is an even harsher place than it is now. And you're, you're really, you're really risking your life to sort of stand up for all of who you are. And this young girl is willing to do that. And so that shows you how important our whole selves are and our full identities and being seen um, because she really is risking her life to just be seen and be heard as she is. Oh, you just said so much there and I don't even know what direction I want to go next. Okay. (laughs) I'm not even sure what direction I'm in. I don't know either. Where do we go? Okay. All right. I'm collecting myself. So I think that 
like, let's just talk about where Hannah is at the beginning of this book, because you kind of let us in there. This is a very harsh world that she's living in. It's 1880. We're in the Dakota Territory. Interestingly, Linda Sue Park actually modeled the town that Hannah and her father end up settling in after the town that the Wilders, right. the Ingalls is, I guess, not the Wilders, the Ingalls live in the Little House on the Prairie books. Like, I think if you read the book closely, um, you'll notice that the town of La Forge is actually actually mapped out pretty similarly to the town that Laura grows up in. I read some interviews where Linda Sue Park like kind of specifies like which characters in her book were modeled after which of the characters in Laura Ingalls Wilder's books, which is interesting. But they settle in this town of La Forge after years of traveling. I think it was something like three years since mm-hmm. Hannah, who's 14, since her mother's passed away. And since then, she and her father have been kind of like wandering from place to place, trying to figure out where to put down roots. And so I think on top of just the harshness and the realities of this world, we have to remember that Hannah is completely by herself. Like she doesn't have friends. She doesn't have any roots. She has just been going from place to place with her father who really doesn't understand her, who's who's going through his own grief that he is clearly not in a place where he's able to express. He can't communicate about what he's feeling. He certainly hasn't like processed his grief in any way that I think we in 2021 like might encourage someone to do. He's in full survival mode. And he has such a complicated relationship with Hannah that he's kind of like keeping her at arm's length, I think. Yeah. So on top of the fact that she's living in this difficult time, she is a biracial teenager in a time when she doesn't know any other biracial teenagers. They used to live in California where she saw a lot of other Asian Americans but now she like hasn't seen anybody that looks like her in a long time and I mean everybody's been a teenager and everybody knows that it's like hard to spend a lot of time with your parents sometimes when you're a teenager her dad is the only person that she has consistently in her life she's not communicating with him like I feel like I'm talking in circles a little bit but that must be how Hannah felt because they're walking in circles she has no one to talk to and she must just be so sad yeah and yet you know, she she really is somebody who's so resourceful and has such a kind of drive to sort of get to a more, you know, have more agency in her life and, and get to a better place. And I think one thing that gives her that drive, um, I was really thinking about this, is her love for making things, her love for sewing. And I think that I thought about how I really, I was a creative kid. And so growing up, you know, I really turned to a lot of different creative projects, but just whether it was writing, because I always loved writing, I would write a poem or I would write in my journal. Um, I like to paint, I like to draw, I like to cook, I like to sort of make things. And I think it was a really empowering feeling for me, whether it was good or not, whatever I was doing, that, you know, no matter how I was feeling and you know, growing up in Connecticut, I could really relate to Hannah, that there was nobody just like me around in my in my school life and kind of in my neighborhood. Um, there were very few Jewish kids, very few kids with Indian backgrounds, and certainly not both. I mean, I really didn't know a single person just like me in my world. And so I really turned to those creative pursuits. And I think that she, you know, she's certainly driven to finish school because her mother wants her to finish school. But it, it took this interesting take, and I hope I'm not spoiling the the novel, where that seems to be the thing she wants to sort of graduate high school and and put value on that as a girl. 
but at the same time, she sort of does it and she's like, okay, good, check that off the box. What I really want to do is sew and create dresses and use her talents in that way, kind of these creative talents. And she's really driven by that. I also related to that idea. And I think that really gave her the strength to always be looking forward and take the risks that she took because of that kind of ambition, in a sense. Yeah, ambition is a great word. She's so ambitious. I love the fact that she was so into fashion. Mm -hmm. And I found myself remembering as I read this and, and as Hannah's talking about her experiences living in Los Angeles, working in like the dress shops with her parents. I do think that growing up, I had such a narrow education about what life was like for people during this time period. And I feel like I only read narratives, not only about white people, but about like people living in the middle of nowhere or like farming the land. Like, I don't think I ever like read stories of people who were living and working in cities and creating things and running businesses. Like, it's just when you think about the many layers of our education system that just like are kind of missing. Yeah. Um, and I, I think that I, I was lucky I had access to great education when I was a kid. And I do feel like even, even by 90 standards, I think I got a pretty well-rounded education. Obviously there's a lot lacking in terms of like narratives of different communities of people, but I was like, Oh wow. In 1880, like you could have gone to Los Angeles and probably bought a really cool dress at a dress shop. Like these are things that I just don't think right. we're educated to imagine. Right. Because you were thinking of basically the little house on the prairie books, right? hundred percent. hundred percent. One thing I did love about those books when I dipped into them was, you know, the sort of the the idea of kind of making things and surviving and that sort of feeling of, you know, it's winter and we have to kind of gather all the food that we need. Don't they just like eat pumpkin at one point for like the entire winter or something? Because that's all they have. So that felt interesting and kind of powerful to me. But that is all you you sort of read or see in that kind of pioneer, kind of white pioneer narrative. Yeah. So the notion that Hannah has had access to all of these like other sources of inspiration and she has this eye and this mind for fashion. I was like, oh, this is so cool. And she's so ambitious. She wants to honor her mother in all of these ways by, as you mentioned, getting her high school diploma, but also by opening a dress shop. This was something that Hannah's parents did together. Um, They worked together. That's how they met. They ran this dress repair and dress making store in California. And that's something that Hannah kind of wants to honor her mother by doing herself. So when they arrive in La Forge, she's like, okay, great. Dad, we got to set up this dress shop, number one. And number two, I need to finish high school so that I can fulfill all of mama's dreams for me, basically. But before we go there, I do want to mention, like within the first few pages of this book, Hannah has her first encounter with a Native American family, which right off the bat, much different than anything we see in Little House on the Prairie and other books that I've read from this time period. I I do want to note, like we keep referencing Little House on the Prairie because it's like the biggie in this category, but there are certainly like Laura Ingalls Wilder was not the only person doing this, which doesn't make her any better for it. But it certainly speaks to the fact that like this is the the vast majority of narratives that I think many of us grew up reading about this time period were much more in the camp of a Laura Ingalls Wilder 
white pioneer perspective. And one of the things that I I read in the shelf awareness interview I I stumbled upon with Linda Sue Clark was when asked like what she would say to Laura Ingalls Wilder if she met her today, Linda Sue Clark said like I really enjoyed your books and I hope you enjoy mine and then I would give her a copy of Prairie Lotus. <laughs> so I thought that was great. But yeah, within the first few pages of Prairie Lotus, Hannah meets some Native American women and she can't communicate with them because they don't speak the same language, but they're able to find common ground in food and in ingredients that they can use, which I thought was so smart because food really is something that we can almost all always agree upon. Absolutely. I think food is so powerful. And I noticed the food in this book and you, I finished this book a few weeks ago, you just finished it. So I am forgetting the name of the vegetable that she, the Native American woman gives Hannah. And it's kind of like a radish sort of, or a parsnip. Yeah, it's like a hybrid of a couple of things. Yeah. It's like a hybrid of of a some sort of a root vegetable and an onion, I think, because yeah. Hannah talks about like braiding braiding them the way that you do onions and then hanging them out to dry. And it's apparently like a super potent flavor that you can boil for a few days and you get the most delicious stock. Right. And she's able to glean all of this from a wordless conversation with these women simply because she is not afraid of them because they're people and she doesn't understand why they're being driven off their own land. Right. And so they've already figured out what this land is giving them food wise. You know, they don't, they don't, they understand the land. They've been working this land first and originally. So so there's all of that. And they're kind of passing that on to Hannah, rather than Hannah stealing from them, you know, mm-hmm. that they're opening it up and allowing her kind of to sort of learn about food and, and pass on their what they've learned. And it's interesting, because it follows a thread through the book. And then when Hannah's getting to know this new friend, sort of her first friend, they have this moment where they are, Hannah, I think, prepares that that root vegetable for her. And she then there's kind of a some of her reflection about how she notices how different people handle trying new foods and, and what she thinks of the person when they either just refuse it, you know, flat out and in kind of a fearful, fearful of the other sort of way, or if they're really interested and really curious and kind of trying new things and going on an adventure and learning about something they don't know about, or kind of somebody in the middle, like a little tentative. And I think her friend ends up to be sort of behaves in the middle. And that was also fascinating. That was something that was articulated that I think all the time about people of how they handle trying new foods. And I, but I didn't organize it that way. And I was like, exactly, that's exactly how that is. And so I I thought it was really fascinating what she was doing with this particular vegetable throughout the book and all of the symbols it held. Yeah, I had a similar reaction to the scene with Hannah and her friend Bess and the soup toward the end of the book where I was like, yeah, you really can learn a lot about people from the way they react to foods that they've never seen or tasted before. And I think we see early in the book by Hannah's reaction to this conversation with the Native American women who offer her this food to start with that like she is open to trying new things. And that says a lot about her. We also get a sense from this interaction of how Hannah feels about what she understands of the laws about the land on which she is living with her father. I pulled out a few quotes. She wondered why it wasn't possible for whites and Indians to share the land somehow, but she already knew from living in California that most white people didn't like having neighbors, Chinese, Indians, Mexicans, who weren't white themselves. 
And this is after she's already sat through Papa's like whole lecture about like why it makes sense that the government is letting settlers move onto this land. He explains to her like, well, if they're not using it, then then we need to. This is great land is kind of like the thesis of what he's saying. And she's like, right, but it's their land. I don't understand why we can't live on it together. So I really appreciated that Linda Supark is super clear from the get go with readers about like what the politics are, because I think that's pretty murky in a lot of other books from this time period. We get a lot of that exposition on the page through Pa. And then also she's clear about Hannah's reaction to it. We meet these same Native Americans later on, which is another interesting study in kind of how Hannah is going to deal with the various stakeholders in the community. But in the meantime, we have her going to school. They've decided to settle, which is a big deal because they've been on the move for a very long time. And her dad gets a lease. He's going to build a house for them to live in and a shop for them to work in. And in the meantime, Hannah is going to school, which she's never really gotten to do before. But she's nervous because she understands that she's probably going to be a target for these kids who are not used to seeing somebody who looks like her. And she wears a bonnet, which is so heartbreaking. The fact that like the first question she asks when she finds out that she's allowed to go to school is, am I allowed to wear a hat? Right. And so that, you know, that need to to hide who you are to be accepted is certainly a theme running through the book. And one that I think most people of color can relate to. And, and it, it, it is also heartbreaking because you do those moments are when you see how alone she is um, and how vulnerable she is. And she happens to be incredibly smart and strong and resourceful, but she kind of has to be those things in order to have the story that she has in this particular book. So what if she what if she wasn't? You know, that's the thing I always think about. What if she wasn't as brave? What if she wasn't um, as resourceful or kind of as smart? You know, what if she didn't impress the teacher? The moment she didn't impress the teacher, she would just be out of there. And that's the thing of that need to sort of have to be so much better than sort of the the average white children in in the school. Um, and you can really see how tentative that is and how vulnerable that is in that, in that moment with the, that she feels she has to wear a hat. And what you're saying, I think, speaks to a larger conversation that we're finally having as a society and that I've really tried to, to listen to over the last few years about how women of color are just assumed to be strong all the time. Um, And that's a societal pressure placed on them. And it's probably adaptive to a certain extent. We see it with Hannah in this book, like she has to figure out how to steel herself against these kids who she knows will be mean to her if she if she sweats for one second. And I think that through a story like Hannah's, we see that like, it shouldn't have to be this way, like children of color should not be forced to grow into this strength, this impenetrability when they're so young, because no wonder they feel those pressures later on. And that's not a pressure that I as a white little girl had when I was a kid. Yeah. And, you know, I think that we keep thinking, I think the mistake is we keep thinking that, you know, we're sort of past some of these things, especially in in certain communities where maybe there have been more progress made. Um, but I do remember, you know, growing up in, I, it was, at this point, it was in the early 80s, I had to change schools. And so this was a small town in Connecticut. I went to this very small private school, kind of this art 
arts-based school started by my parents' friends. Um, they just like started a school and we and my sister cool. and I went there and it was just, it was like camp. I mean, it was amazing. And I really think it gave me kind of this base for all my kind of creative inclinations and pursuits and the freedom to to do so and the freedom to fully be myself. There were only eight kids in my grade and we just, there were like 50 kids in the whole school and we would just sort of move up the grade together. And so it was really like a family. And then the the registration was dwindling in the older grades. And my parents felt like I wasn't getting as sort of a, you know, a varied education. I wasn't really spending a lot of time on math and things like that at the school. Who needs math? Math is silly. <laughs> And it turns out I grew up to be a writer. And so uh, (laughs) you're like, I told you, you should have listened to me all along. (laughs) But that was for me. Personally, there are lots of girls that love math. But anyway, I had to go to the, the public school and change between fourth and fifth grade. And that was such a culture shock for me because you know, I really did feel very accepted and I didn't have to explain myself. And 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 the thing is both of the schools, the majority of students were white. So it wasn't that it was more diverse in that way, this this school, but there was a real knowing of people because we, we were just like 50 people in this community. So everybody just knew each other as whole people. And it was a little more diverse than, and than my, uh, the public school that I went to, but then I went there and it was hundreds of kids. And I felt like I had, I was faced with all these questions about my identity in a way that I never had. And and some kids were really mean and making fun of my last name and just asking me how I could be both things. And in that first year was incredibly difficult and incredibly shocking because I didn't even know, I, I didn't really even know that people would care or think that I was different. And it, and I don't mean that in the way of that none of these differences matter. I think these cultural differences do matter and need to be seen. But I, I remember talking about my different cultures in my family in the old school. And I was like, oh, cool, that's different than me because we do this. And it was just more of a sharing of who we were. And so I it was a really you know, a very kind of xenophobic, racist experience when I, in that first year until I made some more friends and kind of became part of the community. But um, it still, it never went away. I always felt very other. And this was, you know, in like Fairfield County in the 80s. This isn't that long ago, I think. Maybe it is. <laughs> Maybe it it's wasn't. It's I'd not like that long ago. <laughs> the older I get, I'm like, it wasn't that long ago. But, you know, it, it wasn't really that long ago. It was it was a big deal, my background. Hmm. Oh, I can imagine that, that would have been very difficult. Yes. Yes, it was. But I, it gave me, you know, material. So <laughs> yeah, you got to use that, I guess, in your writing. Um, but like you, Hannah has a lot of ups and downs in her school experience. That She has a day that things seem to be going really well. She has this teacher, Miss Walters, who does a really impressive job, I think, of of using the very little resources that she has to like try to help Hannah feel comfortable. She has this idea to do an exercise where she like basically invites all of the students to talk about where they're from originally, because at this time in history, like nobody is originally from the Dakota territory. They've all just arrived within the last few years. And so I thought that was really smart that Linda Sue Park wrote Miss Walters as this teacher who wants to, to show that 
all of Hannah's classmates have a history outside of Dakota territory. And so that seems to be working. But then there's this awful meeting called with all of the parents, because many of the parents are upset that Hannah is at school. And luckily, her dad has made friends with Mr. Harris, who's like kind of in charge of the town. And Mr. Harris defends Hannah and is like, okay, like, let's, let's just wait, you know, I'll, I'll write away to the government, basically, to like, find out if this is okay. And in the meantime, just let her stay. Hannah and her dad are contributing to this community. Like, don't we all want that? And so Miss Walters sort of suggests to Hannah, like, okay, how about we speed up your schoolwork? Because first of all, then we can get you out and graduated at 14, I have to add, before anything else happens. And also Miss Walters is recognizing the fact that many of the other parents in the community are keeping their children outside of school because they're so upset that Hannah is there, which is awful and racist and xenophobic and terrible. But I think Miss Walters recognizes that like the best plan for everybody so that everybody can get what they want because Hannah just really wants to have her diploma is for Hannah to graduate quickly. So Hannah graduates within a few weeks, a few months. It's very impressive how fast she does this. Um, her friend Bess, ultimately they become friends, also graduates in that accelerated manner. And things really start to pick up with the dress shop. Um, We see Hannah, as you mentioned, like flexing those ambitious muscles. She's an entrepreneur. She has all these ideas for her dad about like how they should set up the shop, what makes the most sense in terms of like the logistics of the space. And she's just really smart. I love to like watch her process what's going on and make the suggestions to her dad. Her dad is an interesting character who I had all kinds of feelings about throughout the book. But I do think for the most part, he seems to trust her, um, at least her instincts with the business, which I thought was cool. Mm-hmm. Even though I didn't always appreciate the way he approached her emotionally. What did you think about her relationship with her dad? Because it was pretty nuanced. It was. And I really liked that, you know, you could tell he ultimately loved Hannah, but he really didn't fully understand her experience and maybe didn't fully understand his own decision to marry her mother and kind of what that was sort of risking for all of them. And so I think there's a part of him that's certainly scared. And then he covers that with, with anger, but he's not just the thing that's not great about him that you, you hear over and over is that he's not just worried for his daughter you can tell that there's that both, you know, as somebody who is white and male, there's a part of him that you get the sense would kind of wish all these problems would just go away and like, just stay in the background and let me kind of make a living and not, not have these issues. There's almost a resentment for it, but at the same time, he'll like catch himself right at the, at the moment where it's really not okay. And as you said, you know, he, he really does trust her and he really he does love her. And so that ultimately wins out, but she has to kind of shake him a few times and be like, this is not okay with me. And you don't know as a reader what that's going to mean. And that's where you see that he does love her and he, he ultimately does listen to her. But if she was, again, a different kind of person. He would have just kind of shoved her to the, to the back and kind of hid her away as he sort of developed his his livelihood just because you know he was trying to survive in a difficult time it wasn't that it was easy for him but it was harder for her we get a really a really clear picture of the complexity of their relationship 
near the end of the book when Hannah faces arguably the biggest trial that we see her go through um, in our time with her in Prairie Lotus because something really awful happens to her and she is not comfortable sharing it with her dad. Hannah and her friend Bess are out running errands and Hannah is assaulted by a man named Mr. Swenson who has been drinking. He's out with a friend. They use some racial slurs to describe her. They put their hands on her um, and she has to distract them by talking about his missing buttonhole. Like that's how he, that's what she has to do in order to get him away from her. And I had so many I'm getting chills, like honestly, just thinking about it and and the way that Linda Supark wrote this scene. But also the fact that she uses the word assault in this book many times. I I mean, I hate this is a thing that that we have to see Hannah experience. I hate that this is a thing that so many people experience. It's something that I've experienced. It's something that so many people that I know have experienced. But I so appreciate the fact that Linda Sue Park used the word assault in this book. Yes. Because I think I was really reading it as a middle grade book. And then when I researched it, I think maybe it's like technically YA. I think it, I think yeah. it could sit in either place. But I think just like based on my own reading tastes and like my experience reading between these two categories, I was like, oh, this feels like middle grade to me. And then I got to the scene where, where we're seeing a very graphic experience for Hannah and then the word assault is used. I was like, okay, this is a different kind of middle grade. And I'm I'm not in the camp of people who's like, oh, well, this has to, this is this is now a YA book. Obviously, there's trigger warning, there are trigger warnings that I think need to be issued. Um, and certainly children who are younger would I think do well to have some resources as they're reading this kind of material. But I was like, oh wow, this is different. Like I I just I have a lot of respect, I think, for the fact that Linda Sue Park like was willing to kind of adjust the vocabulary that I think for so long authors have have used to address kids in this age group. Mm-hmm. And I think just giving kids this language is really important, even though it's hard. Yes. And I agree. I had all of those feelings when I read that scene and, and the reaction to the word and also the way it bridges that kind of middle grade YA space and Hannah's 14. So you know, it's really just a story for young people, which I think that, you know, we often put books in these categories to certainly help readers find them, but they tend to be more of these marketing categories. And I I really appreciate that, you know, sometimes it's, it's just a story about a 14 year old, whether it's kind of middle grade or why it's just a story about this 14 year old girl. And I think that that word, you know, it is like somewhat of a, a, a liberty to sort of put a slightly modern lens on something that happened all the time to get to the greater truth of what happened. And so what she felt, it it just gave this more truthful account of what she experienced and how she had to absorb that trauma and go on. And so it, it really highlights it for the reader that this isn't something that's gonna be swept under the rug as it would be, and as it still is, a million times for for young girls and women. Um, just this sort of, this is just what happens when you're a girl or a woman in the world. And you, it's like something you're supposed to handle and absorb the trauma and move on. And so this really highlights it in a way of the truth of what it needs to be um, and the way it needs to be talked about. 
because it's not that middle kids and young girls who read middle grade fiction, some of those girls are having these experiences. So if that's another way, if you never see yourself and never see an experience that maybe you have, as heartbreaking as that is, we're erasing something and we're asking young girls to kind of absorb this trauma and pretend it never happened. So it was a huge, a huge moment in the book. And she handles it so well, because I do think that, you know, when you were writing for young people, I certainly was thinking that a lot, especially when I wrote my book um, about the partition of India, The Night Diary. I want to show the truth of what the pain of what happened. But at the same time, I want to give, you know, a 11 year old reader this subject in the way that I think that it can be absorbed for that age group. And I think she does a really good job just kind of translating it for a young reader, but at the same time showing exactly what happened and the truth and the nature of that. I thought so too. And I thought the way that she depicted the consequences um, that so many people can experience in in the aftermath of this sort of situation, I I thought that was really well done too. Um, Mr. Swenson goes around and like, accuses Hannah of being the the catalyst for what he did, um, telling everybody in town that it was her fault, which is a story that we hear all too often. um, And of course, because it's 1880 and the Dakota Territory, and we have Hannah, a biracial girl that so many people in the community are already distrustful of, they take Mr. Swenson's word over hers. And as a result, many people Say that they're no longer coming to the big grand opening of the store that Hannah and her dad have been planning. She's been so excited about it. And one of my favorite moments of the book comes right here when Hannah asks Bess if she will step up and, and actually help Hannah and her father recover what's going on with their grand opening because Bess is upset that Mr. Swenson is going around spreading rumors and, and they're discussing this. And Hannah says, you say you're sorry this is happening to us. Are you sorry enough to help? Yes. And I was like, oh, like that hit me in the stomach. And it's that's a question that I think so many of us have been forced to reckon with in 2020 and 2021, especially. It's a question that's long overdue. And, and then Hannah goes on to sort of more specifically ask Hannah if she will be an ally. She asks her if she'll go around and actually like tell the women in town the truth of what happened with Hannah and Mr. Swenson. She says, if I tried to convince the ladies, they wouldn't believe me. No, it's worse than that. They wouldn't even let me in the door to speak to them, but you could do it. They'd invite you right in. They'd listen to you, even the ones who would never give me the time of day. Right. And it's it's just such an important reminder, I think, to people who are in power to, right. to figure out how they can use that power to help to resituate some of those power imbalances. And in this case, Bess has an opportunity to do that in her community. And spoiler alert, she does. And people show up to the big grand opening and Hannah and her father get what they want. And uh, I just really loved that we have this like this friendship story that's also tied up in like this, this significant moment of allyship and standing up for what's right. I thought it was just fantastic. Yeah, I mean, it's such a great illustration of what allyship is and that that you need to be willing to kind of sacrifice a moment of safety and comfort to actually be an ally to somebody who's used to not having that safety and comfort all the time. And how do you feel about not having that for a short amount of time to um, stand up for somebody 
that's, you know, constantly experiencing that and to really be able to face that truth, you know, and then also Miss Walters, the teacher also helps her. But there, there's a moment in the story where I think Miss Walters says to Hannah, don't worry, it'll be all right. Mm-hmm. There is that moment. And she does, you know, really help her. But I think Hannah reflects and you're, you're sort of remember the specifics a little fresher than I do, but she reflects um, I wonder what that's like to feel like things are going to be all right. You yeah. know? And that is a sort of entitled view, even though, you know, Miss Walters actually does the work to help things be all right. But it is that view that she has, that she believes that Hannah kind of knows, oh, it may not be like, I really, I know that it could very well just not be um, in a way that you maybe don't understand. Oh, there's so much in this book. We could probably talk for another two, three hours about it. Yeah. On the whole, Vera, um, I've been asking all of my New Reads November guests this year to talk about how the experience of reading this newer book compares to the memories they have of reading when they were growing up. How does Prairie Lotus differ from the books that you had access to when you were a kid? And what do you think that tells us about the sort of progress that the publishing industry is making, that Kidlet is making, or maybe about where we still need to go. Yeah, well, it, it's certainly different in the in the ways that we've talked about of just being able to see somebody who is a biracial character, half Asian, half white, what that means in her space, and then sort of apply it to my own experiences growing up. And so that sort of nuanced sense of history and taking a sort of a, you know, a book series that we've read and loved in this country and examining it, putting it kind of showing it with a different lens and saying, you know, maybe you love those books, but these were the problems. And this is the way that I am kind of putting something new into the world to show something new about the world that's always been there. That's a thing. It's, it's, all kinds of people um, have always existed. And so that's what diversity is and sort of diverse diversity, you know, and, and the, that idea that many different stories need to be shown to many different kids. And that is one way to kind of diversify our thinking and our experiences and for more people to see themselves and for more people to um, learn about experiences they don't know about and empathize with more experiences. So those are all the things that this book kind of brings to the table, um, certainly part of the Native American experience. Um, and I think Linda Sue Park said in a podcast, I don't remember which one, but I heard her saying in the history of our country or the world, you know, who else was there? You know, this is a lens we've always seen, but who else was there having experiences? And then what other stories can be told from that? So I love how she puts that. Oh, I love that too. I'll have to find that podcast. Uh, listeners, if I find it, I will link it for you in the show notes. Vera, other than Prairie Lotus, what have you been reading lately that you would recommend to our listeners? I will also include these suggestions in the show notes. Yes. So um, one of the books that I have read recently is um, by Ruth Behar, Letters from Cuba. Hmm. And it's a really an interesting sort of read along with this book because it's a girl, a Jewish girl who travels to Cuba with her father to basically escape the Holocaust from Poland. 
And she and her father, the father is a very different character, but she starts to sew and use sewing as a way to make money to bring the rest of her family over to Cuba out of safety. And there was this really interesting parallel between the main character Esther in this book in Letters from Cuba and and Hannah and the way they both use this talent as a, a a method to gain some kind of agency and power to basically just survive. So I I think it would be a great pairing with Prairie Lotus. And I really love the book. Oh, that is a great pairing. I do remember there was a line in Prairie Lotus where she was, where Hannah is like, I was going to win over all of the women of La Forge with my sewing. So that is a really great parallel. And Vera, you have a new book out. It came out in September, How to Find What You're Not Looking For. Can you tell us a little bit more about that as well? I'm sure that our listeners are going to want to go grab a copy for themselves. Sure. So How to Find What You're Not Looking For is about an 11-year-old girl named Ariel. She is Jewish, growing up in 1967. Her parents run a bakery in a small Connecticut town, very little Jewish community. And her older sister falls in love with an Indian college student, and they decide to get married. And partly they're they're inspired by the recent Supreme Court Loving versus Virginia ruling, which bans all laws against interracial marriage at that time. And Connecticut was not a state that that had those laws at that time, but still 16 states in our country still had laws against interracial marriage. And the story is based somewhat on my or inspired by my parents' own decision to get married in 1968. And my mother is Jewish American and my father was born in India, came here. He's Hindu, came here, met my mother. And when they decided to get married, they did not have the support of their families at first. And so Ariel watches her parents decide to really cast out her older sister from the family because of her decision to marry somebody who isn't Jewish and isn't white. And those are both those kind of ideas that are on the table, themes that are on the table in the book. Um, So I'm really exploring kind of a different aspect of my family history. And it's really not about my parents, but their choices definitely inspired Uh, the couple in the book, but I wanted to write it for younger readers. So I was figuring, you know, out what, what lens would I put on this idea and this story. And so Ariel, a character who is kind of like me and kind of not like me, and she's a Jewish girl growing up in 1967. And, you know, there are ways that she's quite different from me, but at the same time, very connected to my own experiences. So Wow. (laughs) What a cool tribute to your family history. That's so special. Thank you. Well, congratulations. Um, Listeners, I will include links to Vera's books, including how to find what you're not looking for in the show notes for this episode. You'll also find a link to Prairie Lotus there and to all of the cool resources that I mentioned in this conversation. Vera, thank you so much for spending some time with me today. It was so fun talking with you. I'm so glad I finally got to read Prairie Lotus. And this was just such a meaningful conversation. I appreciate you taking the time. Oh, I loved it. And I'm glad that I, it sort of pushed me to read Prairie Lotus right now too. So thank you. It was a great conversation. Thank you. Bye. Bye. SSR is part of the Frolic Podcast Network. Find more podcasts you'll love at frolic.media slash podcasts. Thanks so much for listening to the SSR Podcast. 
Check out our website at www.ssrpodcast.com for show notes and other information. And be sure to connect with us on social media for updates on upcoming episodes, behind-the-scenes inside scoop, and some good old-fashioned book talk. Find us at SSRPod on Instagram and Twitter, and search SSR Podcast on Facebook to join the group. To reach out directly, you can send me an email at hellossrpod at gmail.com. If you're loving the show, it would mean so much if you could subscribe, leave a five-star review, and share your thoughts with a comment. And don't forget to tell your friends, too. In the meantime, happy reading. I'll see you next time on the SSR Podcast.